amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. COVID, culture wars, climate change, we're cursed to live in interesting times. Thankfully, Spiked is here to make sense of it all and to push back against the tide of misanthropy, authoritarianism, and identity politics. But we need your help to do that. We rely on donations from readers and listeners like yourself to keep our content freely available to all. One-off donations are hugely appreciated, but monthly donations are even better. They allow us to plan for the future and to grow. Even £5 per month is a huge help. So start donating now by going to spiked-online.com and clicking the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button. Now, onto the Spiked Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me as ever we have Spiked Deputy Editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked Columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Queen's Speech, the unravelling of Labour and street harassment. So this state opening of Parliament of May 2021 gets underway. Legislation will be introduced to protect freedom of speech. My government will lead the way in ensuring internet safety for all. A technological wild west where abuse, radicalisation and any and all sorts of harm is abundant. So this week the government unveiled its Queen's speech, setting out its plans for post-pandemic Britain. After a year of lockdown, it's worth thinking about what the government has in store for our liberties. Tom, you've been looking at the government's plans for free speech at universities. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Yes, this is a plan that's been in the works for many years now. I think Joe Johnson, when he was higher education minister, mooted this back in 2017 or so, whereby there is this interest in government to try and toughen up the legal duties around freedom of speech on universities. It was something that was proposed in more detail back in February. It was mentioned in the Queen's speech. There's been this whole round of discussion about it again. We've talked about this issue a bit on the podcast before. I think whereas when it was kind of first mooted, the idea of getting involved in universities to this degree, particularly students' unions, was something that looked quite concerning. What it's kind of ended up in is something which I think is nothing particularly to get too upset about. I mean, it's really about toughening pre-existing legal duties on universities, particularly in the Education Act. And kind of clarifying the very confused picture that a lot of universities' bureaucracies were in because they had all these competing legal duties to uphold free speech on the other hand, but also to caveat that alongside all kinds of equalities, duties and all the rest of it at the same time. So I think at the very least, it will probably give university bureaucracies less place to hide in relation to some of these things. But I think the main point about it is the fact that primarily the problem on campus is cultural, really. Mm. I mean, we've seen the big cases of academic freedom and free speech being challenged in universities in recent years. We're talking about mobs of people trying to intimidate academics. If you think about Kathleen Stark or Selena Todd, um, these are instances in which you have other academics and student campaigners 
intimidating, gender-critical feminists, the attempts to shut down meetings, etc. I think we just need to have a look into America to see that this is a political rather than a bureaucratic problem. Mm -hmm. You know, public universities in America are bound by the First Amendment. They cannot silence speakers in the way that universities and certainly students' unions have latitude to do here in the UK. And yet the problem there is, if anything, worse. You know, if you can't do it by bureaucratic means, you'll do it by more physical means and shut down meetings and all the rest of it. I mean, on university campuses in the US, there's been violent skirmishes over these kinds of issues at Evergreen or Berkeley or elsewhere. So I think in a sense, it's a little bit naive. I mean, the proposals themselves accept that this is a cultural change. Perhaps this change in emphasis, if you like, in the legal framework will make something of a difference. But really, the battle against campus censorship is that is something that really needs to be won in hearts and minds. And I think that's something which going on the knee-jerk rejection of this even <laughs> being an issue yeah. amongst universities, students and the commentary in general suggests there is quite a mountain to climb there. Well, yeah, I think, I think that's what we should come into next, really. I mean, a lot of the opposition to the bill is in quite bad faith, you know, saying that there is simply no problem of free speech on campus. And you know, even just this week, there's been a kind of mutiny at Edinburgh University where senior academics have called on the principal to resign, accusing him of allowing an intolerant and illiberal culture to take root. I mean, Edinburgh last year renamed its David Hume Tower because activists accused this great Enlightenment figure of making, you know, racist remarks back in the 18th century. He should have known better. He should, he really should have known better. And, and recently we had the case of Professor Neil Thin. You know, he is essentially cancelled for criticizing the renaming of Hume Tower, but also woke racial politics more generally, which as you pointed out at the time, Tom, he was essentially making anti-racist arguments, but not in the right way, not in the, you know, socially accepted woke way. So, you know, anyone who is denying this is a problem still just really needs to have their head examined or is probably acting in bad faith and is in support of the kind of censorious movements on campus. Ella? I am very against the bill because I think the situation, as Tom has outlined, it is so serious in relation to the culture of censorship on campus. Because while, you know, the kind of idea to put you know, financial restraints or threats of legal action where there are instances of speakers or lecturers being banned or stopped from doing some kind of research or student groups prevented from inviting a speaker. Okay. Um, for that individual, that group, that, you know, that might be a good sort of solution. But the real problem is that for every speaker that's banned, there are a hundred you know, plans that are scuppered before anyone can even put them into action because students and lecturers are frightened of what will happen, you know, the the issue of self-censorship. And I think that, you know, when you look at the way in which the government is acting in relation to free speech more broadly, it's kind of ludicrous to have a free speech bill of university at the same time as having the prevent strategy still on the books, which is a racist policy, you know, to criminalizing anyone who kind of, and casting suspicion on anyone who even mentions anything relating to extremism. And at the same time, pushing forward the online harms bill, at the same time, pushing forward the police crime sentencing courts bill, which is dire consequences for protest. I mean, this is not a government that is, <laughs> that is on board with the principle of what free speech means or all the principle of what academic freedom means. Um, so this seems like just a, a means to create a kind of litigious atmosphere on campus, but also 
wish away the very deep rooted problem of how you how you deal with campus censorship by legalistic means and i think the the main thing that people who are interested on about free speech on campus have to talk about is how do you convince the wider student body how do you convince the wider you know roster of staff on universities to come out and stand up for people when those instances of censorship happen it has to be kind of informal very resistant to this idea that you can uh, sort of create laws and have a top-down approach to what has to be a means of how we interact with each other. You know, the the whole point of free speech on campus is you have an atm- atmosphere where people can bump up against each other and row and debate and things get messy, and that's okay. Having a kind of part of the bill has a you know a means for a complaints procedure. This is, I think, for me, this is the worst bit of the bill: is that students can complain and go through this kind of formal procedure to make complaints either against other students, their students' unions, officers, or academics who are trying to stop them from putting on event. This really kind of gross, grubby treatment of students as customers, as we've seen this kind of marketization of university treating students like this, where it's like, if you don't get what you want, you go through a complaints procedure rather than having a political response to this and a political row. So, you know, I, I feel much more pessimistic about it because it's not that I I don't welcome the government recognising that this is a very, very real problem and finally, hopefully putting to bed the kind of ridiculous claims that campus censorship is just some kind of right-wing scaremongering that many on the left seem to still think it is. But government intervention at this level on the basis of free speech from a government that has no interest in free speech more broadly, I think is bad news. I guess the problem is that, you know, universities do have all these competing demands, Mm. you know, safeguarding, equality law, all that, all those other things. And emphasizing free speech is one of the key duties because universities can just say, oh, we have this other thing to lean on every time there's a kind of censorious episode. I don't know. I, I'm much less pessimistic about that. Well, I think it's just it's clarifying the picture, which is what to say on one hand, it's nothing to get too upset about. But on the other hand, it's going to be woefully insufficient for yeah. the reasons that we've been talking about. And I think really what it's pointing to is the fact that there is this duty to uphold freedom of speech within the law. But as Ella was outlining there, the question of what those laws are is still incredibly restrictive. And in the formerly online harms bill in particular, which it is worth dwelling on for a second, are going to get more restrictive, at least in relation to the online rather than the university space. I mean, the online safety bill in particular is introducing the idea that social media firms of a certain size have to take efforts to essentially moderate or mitigate the effects of legal but harmful content, Mm. which is a very alarming thing to get into. Powers will be handed to Ofcom to regulate and enforce here, despite the fact that that institution hardly has a good track record where freedom of speech is concerned. And you see all of this really muddled thinking around free speech in the online space. And you remember earlier this year, the government intervening very strongly when talk radio was kicked off of its YouTube channel reportedly because if it's platforming of lockdown skeptics, YouTube, as we've talked about many times, has incredibly stringent and pretty insane restrictions on even information on COVID that goes against what the World Health Organization says, even though what the World Health Organization says has changed many times over the course of the past 14 months. So you saw the government intervene very strongly then, and yet in their various announcements and documents so far, have even cited that policy as something to look at, Mm. as well as talking very explicitly about the role of Ofcom in regulating misinformation and disinformation on social media, with COVID being a kind of underlying example of the harms that can cause. And again, it's just 
what you see is that huge inconsistency, but just this inability to recognise the fundamental problems here is that the things that this bill was trying to tackle, hate speech, yeah. misinformation, disinformation, obviously there's other things in there about criminal activity and terrorism, etc. but the things that we're concerned about, those are entirely contested topics. That's something which is never really accepted in this discussion. You know, mm. something that's considered to be misinformation one minute could actually be something that's getting at the truth the next minute. Should you effectively criminalise people for making mistakes when talking about scientific or political issues? And similarly, hate speech, as we all know, means something very different to different people, particularly now that we have so many discussions around gender and race, etc., where there are, shall we say, shibboleths, which the vast majority of people don't recognise as such, <laughs> being enforced on people. So, there is a very alarming authoritarian streak in so much of this legislation, as Ella was talking about. The university thing just seems to be one slightly tepid exception to yeah. all of that, really, because it's just become such an important issue, rightfully so, in recent years. Yeah, and I think it's really important to emphasise just the extraordinary scope of the online safety bill. They're asking, you know, a regulator, Ofcom, to pretty much regulate an entire world of internet content. Some of the harms, you know, range from criminal activities, as you were saying, but things like trolling, harassment, bullying, even, you know, causing someone to lose sleep is considered um, part of the harms caused by the internet. Psychological distress, which could result from anything pretty much, you know, this is a kind of how long is a piece of string, piece of legislation where it will probably just evolve in whatever direction the regulators see fit. And as we know, that that direction always happens to be in the direction of less freedom, in the direction of more censorship. And I think the government would like to present itself as, you know, taking the fight to the tech companies. You know, we're, te we're taking on big tech because they're evil and they let these harms spread. But in reality, it's actually buttressing the tech firms. It treats the tech firms as the guardians of correct opinions and essentially, you know, allows them to draw up their own codes of conduct, which are then in turn backed up by the regulator. So in, in, in many ways, in a very strange way, it empowers the tech firms to continue censoring at will. They're not going to face fines for censoring content too readily, but they will be fined if they don't. So that's a very, very worrying prospect. We should talk a little bit as well about one other aspect of the bill that's caught a lot of attention, another potentially authoritarian measure, which is voter ID. Tom, do you want to say something on that? So on the question of voter ID, I think this is a really worrying development because I agree with uh, many people have criticised this particular measure as far as it's a solution in search of a problem. You know, mm. Matt Hancock had to admit on Sky News this week that there were only six instances of voter fraud <laughs> that the police found at the last general election. And that was a poll involved, what, 47 million people? So yeah. now I know that there are ongoing concerns around uh, postal voting. I think that's a far more important debate to be having. I'm not 100% mm. sure what I think about it yet. But this idea that people would have to show up at a polling station with an ID, given the fact that many people don't have ID, given the fact that many of the places in which this is necessary are places where you have to have ID anyway, so it's a very different picture, could be very prohibitive for young people, older people as well, which surely can't be very good for the Tory party, <laughs> um, as well as ethnic minority voters. And whilst people could say, well, it's just a question of having identification, why is it such a big deal? I think anything that you put barriers in between people and the democratic process without there being a very clear reason as to why you were doing so isn't necessarily going to be prohibitive. You just get in a situation where people at polling stations will have to be checking IDs, working out if this person's legit people will be turned away as a consequence of this. But as we've been talking about with some of the free speech issues and the campus issues as well, 
the outrage directed at it from people who have spent the past five years trying to overturn the Brexit vote, suggesting this is a coup against democracy that, and all the rest <laughs> of it, just makes you realise how, for all the talk about Boris Johnson trying to turn these issues into a culture war without really caring about them, that is exactly true of his critics on these issues around free speech and voting and all the rest of it. They're just so full of it, to be honest with you. I love the feeling I get when I learn something new, that aha moment. It's so satisfying and empowering. With The Great Courses Plus, I can experience that feeling whenever I want. Recently, I've been enjoying the course World War II, The Pacific Theatre, produced in partnership with History. From 1941 to 1945, Japan and the US waged the largest naval war in history. This course leads you through the evolution of naval warfare, looking at each nation's strategies and tactical advantages, from kamikaze pilots to the atomic bomb. I want you to try The Great Courses Plus today. There's so much knowledge to tap into. You're going to love it. With The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited streaming access to thousands of video lectures on virtually anything that interests you. You can learn chess from an expert, explore the cosmos, even get tips on how to train your dog. The possibilities are endless. And with The Great Courses Plus, the content is all thoroughly vetted, fact-based information you can trust from some of the best professors and top experts in their fields from all over the world. Plus, you can download the Great Courses Plus app and watch or listen on any device anytime you want. I want you to experience that aha moment for yourself. Sign up for the Great Courses Plus today and start your 14-day free trial. And for a limited time, Spikes Podcast listeners can save 20% off the annual membership. But this is only available through our special URL. So go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked to take advantage of this fantastic offer. Don't forget thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. So that's what the Tories have in store for us. The Labour Party is still reeling from its defeat in the Hartlepool by-election and its huge losses in English councils last week. Starmer has reshuffled his front bench in response. He's ditched his shadow chancellor, Annalise Dodds, for not really making much of an impact. It's not clear whether he tried to sack his deputy, Angela Rayner, as she ended up with more titles than she started with and is now shadowing Michael Gove. A lot of people in Labour, or at least on Starmer's side of Labour, think Rayner is the woman to save the Red Wall. Tony Blair has also intervened. I mean, he's never off television these days, but he's accused the party of being too woke. Ella, did you want to say something about that? You're right. Tony Blair is never out of the spotlight. the man who loves the sound of his own voice. But he's written this really long piece for The New Statesman, which lots of people are. It's dividing opinions, let's put it that way. And while the headline of it is sort of about woke, and he mentions, you know, the Labour Party's problem with relying on sort of sitting on the fence of the big culture wars debates like transgenderism or questions about race or sort of in a superficial way supporting things like Extinction Rebellion and Black Lives Matter without thinking about how that resonates with voters. But actually the real thrust of what he's writing about, where he says that the Labour Party needs complete deconstruction and reconstruction, is actually 
got less to do with the culture wars and more to do with what he sees as the the future of politics, which is really important for thinking about where the Labour Party is going, because basically Blair's intervention boils down to the future is tech, everything from you know environmentalism to the economy to fighting obesity to uh, you know electoral reform everything under the sun is down to technological advance and therefore the labor party has to reframe itself around becoming tech savvy and becoming managerial he uses the word manage a lot in terms <laughs> of being able to have a, he says an interventionist government which is able to manage the future in a way that will benefit people and basically it's just technocracy he's is literally written thousands of words in support of the Labour Party becoming a technocratic party without the kind of, uh, without the sort of self-awareness to understand that that is what the Labour Party has been for a very long time. And he does down Corbyn, as you might expect, saying that he was kind of a protest politician and writes that start really in defence of Starmer being this very stand-up kind of a guy, someone you can really trust, but that he just hasn't managed to let go of the old shibboleths, let go of the idea that the Labour Party was once the party of the working class or that belief that it once was. And he wants them to just move into this sort of big liberal soup of of nothingness in conjunction with the Liberal Democrats, lash up with a few sort of liberals, the Greens maybe, and become the new progressive force. And the reason why it's so important and such a sort of fascinating insight is that this is the only future for the Labour Party, is to become, and he uses, you know, the term to to become a party of the interests of the self-employed and the small businessmen to become the party of the petty bourgeoisie in an open way that it hasn't for a long time admitted that it is. And, you know, therefore, it's unsurprising why people are turning off them in the local elections, you know, in their thousands. Why Keir Starmer, the bright hope for Labour's future, has failed to gain any kind of traction because he is just, <laughs> as Blair wants him to be, a kind of a nothing man in charge of a nothing party. I mean, who's interested in another party of the middle class? Not me. There's no room in politics for <laughs> another party of the middle class. They all are. There's nothing transformational or radical about it. Time and again on this podcast, we talk about the fact that you feel like you're just hitting your head against a brick wall with Labour. And there have been some progressive turns in, in terms of voters in the past who might have on cultural basis or or kind of you know with family ties voted labor with no illusions for years that's all coming to an end now with the kind of drop in support for labor but the you know where its future lies i'm less interested in terms of what else there is out there other than the labor party i wish we could just forget about this horrendous slow death of the labor party you mentioned Keir Starmer we should talk a bit about him let's not forget that when he was elected Labour leader, there was a kind of Starmer mania. Mm. And now everyone seems to have finally woken up to the fact that he's a bit useless and a bit drab. Tom? <laughs> the the political class and the media elites do this. They get obsessed with a kind of shiny, new, vaguely liberal, in quote marks, thing every couple of years. And then it's amazing how quickly they turn on them. Like, you know, we've had Starmer mania, Clegg mania, Change UK mania. Yep bout of Rory Stewart mania. Um, <laughs> and it's just amazing how quickly they come to the conclusion, something that was staring everyone else in the face, that this bloke was just a kind of walking haircut posing as a politician, had very little to say for himself, and was not going to do well, given the second referendum, given the fact that his politics are broadly speaking, very metropolitan liberal, in precisely the red wall seats that he was supposed to try to win back. And it's worth looking back a little bit at some of the coverage now, given the fact that everyone's now 
caught up with what we and others were saying about <laughs> Starmer right from the off. You know, there was this headline of the Observer was a piece by Andrew Rawnsley said the Tories are struggling to find a way to make Keir Starmer look bad. You know, there was another at <laughs> the Independent. Keir Starmer is doing opposition by numbers, and it's working. Like, and all these, this kind of essentially a huge amount of excitement because he was quite good at PMQs. Yeah. That was essentially it. Forensic care. Forensic care. Everyone whipping themselves up into something approaching erotic excitement each mm. week as he took apart the Prime Minister. And it's just really quite striking to me. I think we talked a lot about expert failure in recent years and the fact that the experts have got things wrong time and time again, often not seeing the kind of oncoming train heading towards <laughs> us and society in relation to the financial crisis or the Iraq war, getting Brexit so wrong. So many of those predictions been completely proven untrue at this point. But it is really quite striking how people whose entire job it is to study, follow, write about and talk about electoral politics seem to have absolutely no idea what voters think. And I think the Starmer mania and its collision with reality is just another thing that underlines that really. They've just got absolutely no idea, despite the fact that in recent years, the electorate have reminded them what they think time and time and time <laughs> again. So yeah, it's hard to account for it really. I think one of the things that the pundits and the and the Labour Party shares this kind of disconnect from the working class. And that has been obviously to the fore of people's thinking over the last week, you know, especially after Hartlepool, showing that the Tories actually have further they can go. There's more scope for them to rip chunks out of Labour's old red wool. And it's been really fascinating to see some of the absolute flailing around, particularly weirdly from the Corbynistas, who like to think they're not implicated in this. You know, they, they're in complete denial that Labour has lost the working class I think many of them think of themselves as working class because they can't afford the rent in London, doing unpaid internships. You know, they're on the, at the start of their career, not, not yet earning 40k. All the other excuses that, oh, those northerners are actually quite affluent or they're pensioners. So they have their secure income, mm. but because the, they own a house that's worth 60,000 pounds or something. Exactly. Like that. So they're, so they're minted. <laughs> uh, and it's obviously class is a, is a complex subject. There's no concrete scientific measurement of it but you know to those in labor in denial there is just no way you can slice it and not realize that labor has a problem i mean in 2019 low-income voters opted for the tories over labor for the first time in history the c2d social grade often like a shorthand for working class you know has its problems but that's kind of just about says it referring to skilled and unskilled workers they're voting Tory. People with fewer qualifications are voting Tory. So you really get this picture of this seismic electoral shift, and yet people still want to pretend it isn't happening. Well, yeah, the whole fuss over Angela Rayner and whether or not she should be forefront of the face of the, a new Labour revival because of the fact that she has an accent, because of the fact that she's from the North, because of the fact that she gives off this air as being a bit kind of Jess Phillipsy, a bit straight talking, a bit salt of the earth, normal woman kind of vibe. It shows you the superficiality of Labour's understanding of class because, I mean, <laughs> you know, you don't have to be a kind of paid up Marxist to understand that the real way you understand the importance of class is about people's relationship to you know society's resources and the production of labor and all these things that the labor party has completely lost touch with for them it is just about whether or not you fly an england flag out of your um, window next to your white van whether or not you buy fish and chips on the weekend you know where all these things that seem to be at the level of sort of 
superficial cultural signifiers. You know, it's, it's mm. like back in the 80s when lefties used to go around wearing donkey jackets and they thought that that was how they would interact with the working man and if they sort of smoked rollies and spat on the street. And that sort of patronising response to working class people is what's meant that they've turned to vote for Boris Johnson. I mean, the fact that working class people in the Red Wall vote for a booming Etonian isn't just a kind of a weird coincidence. It isn't just a kind of perversion of politics that we live in at the moment. It's the fact that people don't care. This is what the Labour Party has never understood. Don't care what people look like, what they sound like, or actually even what school they went to or their background. It's about what policies they put forward, whether or not they're going to enact their political desires. That was the lesson from Brexit. You know, people who were Leave voters and a large section of Democratic Remain voters didn't care who it was that was doing it. They just wanted this thing, this thing that they voted for, Brexit, done. And the, that, the Labour Party is still playing on the level of kind of of appearances of, of, you know, how many women there are, how many black people there are, how many working class people there are, how many people with an accent there are in their shadow cabinet or otherwise, shows that they have no sense of the challenge which they face. And finally, let's talk a bit about Harriet Harman's latest initiative. Harriet Harman, obviously another big Labour figure. She's proposing to criminalise um, men shouting at women from cars. Ella, you've written about this. Do you want to tell us a bit? This is really quite remarkable and not surprising though, because there's been a lot of fuss from within the Labour Party. And actually there's a cross-party alliance now with Harmon and Caroline Noakes from the Conservatives um, fronting this to do something about harassment, street harassment, um, violence against women, misogyny, whatever you want to call it, sort of inspired by the tragic murder of Sarah Everard. But this has been in the works for a while and it's now come to the fore that there will be amendments potentially made to the policing bill in order to incorporate laws that prevent misogyny, that criminalise curb crawling, street harassment, cat calling, men shouting at women from cars, basically. You know, the important fact being that Pretty Patel, who the Labour Party liked to paint as this, you know, demon who was the kind of embodiment of evil, totally against protest, doing everything wrong in relation to this bill, is now working with Harriet Harman and Noakes in order to get these amendments through. So, the, so you know, crackdowns on protests are bad when, and policing bills are bad when they don't give you what they want. But when they do provide scope to put in kind of criminalization of misogyny, then it's fine and Pretty Patel's your best friend. The reason why this is so important and why I think it's so negative, it's not because there's anything potentially great about catcalling. I mean, you know, some people like it, some people don't. When it's done to schoolgirls, it's disgusting. Um, and most women will have had it happen to them at some point in their lives. And, you know, you might have a good day and laugh it off. You might have a bad day and it might make you feel like shit for the rest of the week, you know. But the point is using the law, it's a bit like the same as the free speech bill, using the law and government and the police to intervene into women's private lives, to basically go over our heads and say, there are some things in life that you're not able to deal with that we will deal with for you. When it comes to comments from people in cars, that's the kind of patronising and actually sexist view of women as not being as capable as men that has held women back for decades. I mean, that's at the root of so many things, so many barriers that women still face today in terms of their freedom, whether it be getting on in the workplace or being able to raise children or any of these things. It all comes down to the idea that women are lesser and weaker than men. And these kinds of laws put forward by people who are supposed to be quote unquote progressive like Harriet Harman cement and instill that idea of women being in need of protection into law. And any woman with a free bone in her body has to see how regressive and damaging this is to women's sense of 
themselves as empowered and powerful. And I mean, this it really comes down to the fact that arguing for a freer world for women where we don't have to deal with lechers and idiots and gross people in cars isn't going to come from waving a magic legal wand. It's going to come from a political argument for women's freedom that is hampered by these kind of restrictive measures. Thank you for listening to the Spiked Podcast. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters to sign up now. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.